Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Rajan Asuko. So today is uh, Tuesday, June 15th. And thank you once again for offering some reflections. So the first question today is something that often comes up, as you probably have experienced yourself. How does one get rid of things we don't like? That's a very interesting question. <laughs> because in the sensory world, there's what we like and what we don't like. And this is the divisive tendency of the thinking mind to, to make judgments, value judgments, what is worthy, what is unworthy, right and wrong, good and bad, true and false. And so, because what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, what we think, <clears throat> you know, changes from pleasant to unpleasant, from from beautiful to ugly, to right to wrong, and and so it goes on and on in this sense realm. Is like this: the sense realm isn't just beautiful and constantly stabilized in beauty and truth. Its nature is to change according to conditions. So the problems that people face in life, they want to get rid of the ugly, the, the corruption, evil, crime. Uh, they don't want pollution. Everything is, you know, trying to, to make everything perfect. On, through through sensory experience, and the senses themselves are uncertain, unstable. So you know, the, uh, blind people can't see. You know whether it's beautiful or ugly, or if you're deaf, you don't know the difference between a pleasant sound or unpleasant sound. So the the sensory world, you know, is depends on senses operating. And uh, when the senses pack up, fail us, then we, we feel something, we feel that it's a kind of what we don't want. We want accurate senses, 20-20 vision, <clears throat> perfect hearing, uh, odors and tastes, and pleasant feelings in the body, uh, and we don't want pain and disease and fevers and COVID epidemics. We want to get rid of all these things. We get rid of the devils, the evil spirits, the ghosts, the, the corrupt politicians, the, the threatening forces that we can create in our mind. We want to get rid of them. And so this is something to observe, the desire to get rid of something you don't like. And in the Buddhist teaching of the Four Noble Truths, the second noble truth is, is the cause of suffering. You know, it relates to the causes of suffering, which is uh, attachment to sensory desires, got desires that we experience through the senses, and then um, desire for becoming, desiring to get rid of. 
So the desire to get rid of what we don't like is something to observe and contemplate. It is impermanent and not self. Like in the experience that we're having right now in, in space and consciousness, like right now, the the condition sine qua non of this moment is consciousness and space because the forms, your form, Ajahnas Hope, and my form couldn't exist if there was no consciousness and no space. And yet, so much of our attention is not given to space and consciousness is a, is a mystery for us. Uh, we We just tend to create habit patterns of reacting to liking or disliking according to what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think. And that's what we're always attaching, clinging to the causes of suffering without realizing what we're doing. So this is called ignorance. In Pali we use the word avicca, not understanding ultimate reality or Dhamma, now they, what we don't like, what we don't want, is a sankara, it's a condition, it's a phenomenon. So it's, it's, it gives us the same wisdom as what we like. And so, you know, in, in one's lifetime, we're given an opportunity to, to experience pleasure and pain, success and failure, praise and blame in, in our lives through a lifespan of average human being. The, you know, fear of the future, dread of possible forces, the, the QAnon conspiracy theories, and you can create any kind of possibility of, of terror and catastrophe in the future. <clears throat> so the future, we want to... <clears throat> a future promised for us where the climate is stabilized and perfect and uh, and we have United Nations of, of civilized uh, countries working together for the welfare of planetary happiness. You know, these are imagined uh, states of utopian idealism, uh, you know, which we, you know, are very desirable. And then their opposites, the dystopian view where everything falls apart. There's no, you can't trust anybody and it's all dark, darkness and pain. You know, none of us want that. So wanting and not wanting are states of mind that arise and cease. So then ask yourself, what, what is aware of wanting or not wanting? Because, you know, you, you know when you, when you want something you don't have, you know, you know you want it, but you attach to wanting something you don't have, trying to figure ways of, of getting it and obtaining wealth or success or happiness or good health and all the best that we can imagine. That's wantable, that's desirable. And, uh, and, you know, we can spend our lives, a lifetime, living to a ripe old age, never awakening to what we're really doing, but living our lives always in wanting things 
that that may may not have in the present moment, or not wanting things to be the way they are in the present moment. So not wanting things is is called vipavadanha, desire to get rid of or annihilate. And it's a, and like any other condition, it is just that. It's it's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. And this these three characteristics of existence in Pali is called anicca dukkha Anicca is impermanence, and dukkha is unsatisfactoriness, and that is non-self. All phenomena is unsatisfactory, is impermanent, and not self. And so in bhavana, in meditation, with wisdom, we see that that uh, when the unpleasant conditions arise, they are what they are. We can we can reflect on we we're changing our attitude. They're just reacting with aversion, trying to suppress or annihilate them, to allowing them to be what they are because they cease all on their own. You you know when you resist something, when you try to get rid of it through willful acts and intention, and that's attachment. That's clinging to it in some way or another. You know, so just trying to suppress evil, trying to kill evil, trying to get rid of pain and suffering, injustice, corruption, uh, kill the devil, uh, the acts, the uh, evil forces in the in the world, and so forth. Is you know we're caught in a in a by attaching to the this kind of desire to get rid of it. You know, it's still an attachment to it. So, you know, you can't really, it doesn't really work because it, it keeps occurring over and over because it's never resolved, never allowed to be what it is and freed by cessation. So in developing the right path, the right way of practice of meditation is letting things be what they are. When they arise, they're like this. Something we want, something we desire is like this. We're not trying to get rid of desires. We're not, we're not taking a stand against desire or evil, but using the interchange between good and bad, right and wrong, in terms of wisdom, that all conditions are impermanent unsatisfactory and not self. So all conditions are equal in these characteristics, no matter what their quality is, whether it's wonderful or horrible, they're equal in the sense that they arise and cease, they begin and end, and they're not self, they're not a person, they're not, a, uh, they're not real in any way. They are illusions that we create and by attaching to them, we live in, in a world that we create with illusions. And that illusory world is um, basically going, uh, the cause of suffering. We're going to suffer from it because it's not reality. It's not perfect. It's full of flaws. And even though you can imagine perfection, 
you'll never find perfection in uh, in conditioned phenomena because its very nature is unsatisfactory. And that's the way it's supposed to be. It can't be any other way. It's interesting how you point not just to the nature of the things that we like or don't like, but you keep coming back to desire for things to be a certain way. How do you broaden that awareness to include the desire aspect? Because we're so habitually drawn out into the world, and you're talking about something that brings the attention back inward. Well, that's where space and consciousness give us perspective on it. You can't, one condition can't really, you know, it's a judgmental conditioning that we have. You know, so thinking, the thinking process is all about value judgments. You know, you can't help but think right and wrong, heaven and hell, good and bad, male and female. These are conditioned into us. That's our whole thinking process. Every language is based on that dualistic conditioning. So we're caught in in this conditioning that we don't realize is the very cause of suffering. So in like in Buddha Dhamma, in Pali Buddhism, we take refuge in Dhamma. And so what is Dhamma, you know, in terms of is there is there an opposite to Dhamma? Is there you know, is the Dhamma that we take refuge in, does it have a, uh, a negative, bad aspect to it? <clears throat> or you can contemplate space, just what you perceive through seeing. Space, you know, doesn't complain, doesn't make value judgments about what's in it. You know, so if it's, uh, Beautiful, you know, it accepts it. If it's ugly and filthy and unpleasant, it, it, you know, there's room in space for every possible phenomenon to arise and cease. And so this is a reflection, you know, using space as it, because we can perceive space through seeing, you know, it, it, it's a kind of a metaphor for consciousness. Consciousness is not judgmental. It's not about right and wrong anymore. And without consciousness, there could be no space. And without space, there could be no forms, no manifestations. So what is the priority then is consciousness itself, where allows space to exist, and space allows forms to manifest. You know, try to imagine forms manifesting in, in, in no space. You know, it's, it's a totally absurd, nonsensical, you know, forms in this room. They need space to exist in. Whether you like them or not is something else. Whether you approve or disapprove, accept or don't accept them, and, you know, that's what your thinking mind determines. It judges. This is bad. This is ugly. We don't want this. This is unacceptable. These, these are words, concepts that come from the thinking process. And it, it's very important to recognize 
the thinking process is what we tend to create the real world with. We create, we create a world based on what we like and don't like. And um, we want, you know, the ideal society is everything we like and nothing that we don't like. Where the idea of uh, absolute hell, you know, eternal hell, uh, is where everything's miserable forever. You know, these are, these are ideas that we create about happiness, success and failure, happiness and suffering. And it's important to recognize idealism is, is based on thoughts, on concepts, on sankharas, on phenomena. You know, the words themselves, every word, even the word dhamma is a phenomenon. But it points to, you know, when we take refuge in Dhamma as Buddhists, we're not taking refuge in some metaphysical doctrine, because it's not a metaphysical doctrine or some theoretical refuge that we're taking refuge in. It's here and now, Santitiko Dhamma, we chant that in our daily chanting. And uh, apparent here and now, conscious space is apparent here and now. The things that arise and cease in space that we're conscious of can be beautiful or ugly, pleasant or painful, you know, in, according to the way we're conditioned. And so the senses themselves, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the very body itself, the brain itself, is conditioned, it's phenomenal. You know, so it, 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 uh, it it's, has that limitation, it can only divide and separate and, and make value judgments and, uh, you know, prefer this and want to destroy what they don't like. That's all thinking, that's all mental creations, that's not consciousness or space. So in, in the six elements that the Buddha pointed to very clearly to contemplate, consciousness, space, then earth, fire, water, and air, the, the, the solid, the, the uh, liquid, the air, the, the fire, you know, all forms, all manifestations in space, have these elements. You can always contemplate the fire element, the air element, the the um, earth, the, the liquid element in, in one's own body, in what we see here, smell, taste, touch, think, you know, it's all can related to manifest, things that manifest in consciousness, spaces in consciousness, Space has no limits, has no boundaries to it. It's one of the immeasurables. But without consciousness, could space exist? You know, consciousness. Without consciousness, there would be no, there'd be no space, no earth, no fire, no water, no air. <clears throat> so this is why the Buddha pointed to consciousness 
to awareness. So when I talk about consciousness in this context, it's it's awareness, it's mindfulness, it's the what we call the gate to the deathless. Because consciousness then, or Dhamma, we can use the word Dhamma instead, is the deathless, it's perfect, it's whole, incomplete in itself, it's not, doesn't have an opposite. In, in chanting, like in Abhidhamma, we chant Kusla Dhamma, Kusla Dhamma, these, these are called Dhammas because they arise from Dhamma and cease in Dhamma, you know, so apply that to consciousness, you know, thoughts arise in consciousness and cease in consciousness. But does consciousness arise and cease with the, with the uh, good Dhammas or bad Dhammas? You know, Dhamma is a, is a generic term and, and in its, when we take refuge in Dhamma, we don't take refuge in Kusla Dhamma or Kusla Dhamma, but in the Dhamma. And so by referring to this word Dhamma, which then in terms of the, of, you know, the best we can do with language, with English languages say it's, perfect and whole, complete, flawless, and with no opposite, it's deathless. Because birth and death are, are, depend on each other. If something is not born, it never dies. And something that uh, isn't born, something that's born always dies. So we reflect that birth and death are are an inseparable pair. What is the cause of death? It's birth. You know, so people want to procreate the species. They want children. They want to give birth to something that's going to die. And they never reflect on that. You know, they, they think of, you know, because this is the kind of instinctual nature of of our human bodies is to procreate the species, the sexual energies that we experience in our forms are natural energies, but they are phenomena, they're conditions that arise and cease. So how do you use this to kind of uh, develop this awareness of these three types of desires you were talking about? Well, what I advise is to take the stand of awareness, be the awareness itself. Not the owner of awareness is a personal property, but just this sense of open attentiveness to the present moment is like this. So when I say this, you know, it's, you know, it, um, we're not focusing on, it's not like concentrating on an object. When I use these words, it's like this. You notice it's not judgmental. It doesn't qualify anything. It's just pointing to open awareness. And we begin to try this out in our own daily life. And right now, what you're feeling is like this. 
And so you're aware, you know, you the because these forms are so sensitive, the body, the the emotional habits we have, we're so caught in reacting to pleasure and pain, praise and blame, success and failure, that we we don't notice the way it is. We just caught in our habitual reactions, patterns that we've developed through our lifetime that will pursue us through to the death of this body. And between the experience of birth and death is this opportunity for enlightenment of seeing things as they are operating from, it's like this, the feeling you have from hearing me talk like this, when I reflect in this way, what is it like? You know, do you understand or confused or do you agree or disagree? But only you yourself at this moment know what you're feeling and it is the way it is. You might not like to tell me you don't understand a word that I'm saying. But if that's what you're feeling, it's like this. And that's the learning to trust that, you know, rather than trying to understand me and try to figure out what I'm trying to say with more thoughts and whether you agree or the scriptures or whether my, my way I'm talking or reflecting is appropriate to your interpretation of the Pali scriptures. You know, that's more speculation, thinking, and uh, proliferating in thoughts, and you never get anywhere with that. You know, you, you just form opinions without any kind of awakening to the opinions you're forming. You grasp your opinions and, and operate from opinionated views without realizing what you're doing. So whatever opinions you might have, you know, about what you're hearing, it's not to form an opinion that I'm right or wrong, but to recognize whether agreement, inspiration is like this, understanding is like this, or confusion is like this, or you disagree is like this an opinion about whether I'm, what I'm teaching is right or wrong is like this. So you're actually using the way you are, the way you, you react and respond to, to the situation you're in in the present. It is, it can only be the way it is. You can't think at this moment exactly like I'm thinking, you know, because the, the thinking process is, is very personal. It's personality. It's how you're conditioned. It's how you, you know, it's your karma, your vipaka karma, the conditioning of your ego and your cultural conditioning, religious conditioning, social conditioning, it's all conditioning. But what isn't conditioned at this moment is awareness. That's not cultural. That's not something you, you, you acquired after you're born. You know, like a newborn baby, as I've reflected many times, is fully conscious form. 
And then that consciousness is given, is conditioned by the parents, by the mother, the father, the, the, the society that they grow up in, the education they receive. Whether it's modern society, technological society, or agricultural society, or feudal society, it's all conditioning. You know, so you, you find yourself, and many of us were conditioned through modern society. And, uh, you know, it has its ideals and its views, like all the the problems around political correctness and speech and statues to to Napoleon or Robert E. Lee, you know, because, you know, they were actually formed from a different time, different conditioning. And now we, we think of Napoleon as a tyrant or Robert E. Lee as a traitor, you know, if you're a Northern American. But then that's modern conditioning. You know, that is, you know, that wasn't, that's not part of, you know, that's not Dhamma or reality. But we can be aware of, of what we, you know, what we are aware of. So, you know, even if your thoughts are insane, you're aware of them, They're, and you think you're insane. Rather than insane thoughts are like this, sometimes just nonsense arises in one's consciousness. Just fantasies, phantasmagoria. You know, I've seen in my own practice over the, in the early years, I'd had, you know, you know, delusions arising in, in consciousness, total crazy delusions that made no sense on the rational, sensible, social, cultural conditioning that I'd received. But being aware of them, they, they, they arose and they went away. So in consciousness, space allows everything to exist. You know, it's, it's these forms that try to create ideals ideals of space and make value judgments of what can exist in this room or or what we won't allow in this in this uh, conservatory that I'm sitting here at this moment you know we have definite views about what is allowable in Ajahn Sumedho's conservatory and what isn't and so this is these are for these are the views and opinions formed by other views and opinions. But the space, the conservatory is in space. Space doesn't really care what's in it. Whatever it is, clean or dirty, right or wrong, it it it, it belongs in you know if it's here and now it belongs here and now. It's it's we, with our value judgments, then decide this doesn't belong here, get rid of it. Like you notice how people present quite regularly beautiful bouquets of flowers. <laughs> and so the flowers are very beautiful when they first come. 
And then the, in Amravati Monastery, they've got excellent flower arrangers. So they make these gorgeous bouquets of uh, roses and and uh, all kinds of different varieties of flowers. And some last longer than others. But when they start fading in their leaves, their petals start dropping. You know, then we decide they don't belong here anymore. The space doesn't care whether they're, they're fading, they're getting old, they're losing their beauty, they're ugly now. You know, the space doesn't care, but it's, it's you or me or someone else that's going to decide whether they're worthy of being in this space. So space, you know, you can contemplate space. You know, it's here and now, wherever you are, whatever state of mind you're in, you know, your space, you know, your body's in space. The, the dwelling you're living in at this very moment is in space. The planet Earth is in space. The sun, the moon is in, are in space. The stars and the planets are in space. Space is has, where does it end? Where, where is it born and die? You know, where is it possible for space? Where does it have a beginning and a birth and, and a death? It doesn't. It's here and now. Whatever state of mind you happen to be in, no matter whether it's hell or heaven, it's always in space. So, you know, just using visual space as a, as a reflection. Because space is here and now, and this, the way it is, is in space. It's in, including everything at this moment. Whether I personally like everything in this space at this moment, something else. But that's not what I'm pointing at, is my personal private tastes in beauty and design and interior decoration, you know, which are very personal, but pointing to something that that which is impersonal at, in this very room is the space and space is in consciousness. So ultimately, you know, we're getting back to, you know, you can, you can perceive space, as I said, reflect just by the, the use of vision. And space is empty. You put things in space, but in itself it doesn't depend on manifestations for its existence. You can take everything out of this room, uh, tear down the kuti, and <laughs> destroy the planet. The space would be still here and now. And then without consciousness, what, how could there be awareness of space? But can you be aware of consciousness? Can you find consciousness? You can perceive space through sight. But you can't perceive consciousness because that's a perceiving mechanism. So, you know, you're, to, now, this is just common sense when you 
when you reflect on it, even logically, you know, it makes sense. And yet in so many people emphasize earth, fire, water, and air as impermanent, ignoring space and consciousness, but these two factors are really the, the ones that allow us this perspective to see the impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness of conditioned phenomena. Then what is, you know, you may ask yourself, what is my real self then? And then some of you will say, well, Buddha said there's no self, there's, so there's no self. It's anatta, you know, there's no self. <clears throat> so don't ask the question about a real self. And so that's, that's logical according to the grasping of the teaching of anatta. What is anatta a doctrine that the Buddha asked us to believe in? Or what remains when we let go of everything? when there's no attachment to desire, when you've let go of sensory, sensual desire, when you've let go of desire for becoming something, you desire and desire to get rid of it. What's left? There's still awareness. Awareness doesn't cease with desire. So what is aware of desire? Consciousness allows us to be aware of desire. So what is your true nature is consciousness, not your body, not your senses, not your ego, not your cultural conditioning, not your education, not your gender, not your race, not your political values, not your religious values, not your preferences, but awareness allows everything to be what it is at this moment. It doesn't make judgments. So in Piro and Ellis's famous quote, the Greek Buddha, you know, to suspend judgment, to, to, uh, what is it? I can't think of it right now. But the, the main line of Pyramus is to suspend judgment. And to to not just discriminate. So so then this is the end of of mental perplexity and suffering is to, is, you know, you, discrimination has its function in worldly life. So there's nothing wrong with the discriminating faculty of thought. But, uh, so we're not trying to stop thinking as, a, as a, you know, some people think that I'm teaching is that I, everybody should stop thinking. But to, be beyond the thoughts to see to see thoughts as they arise and cease because that's what they do you can't sustain thoughts one thought comes and goes very quickly you know even a mantra 
even the Pali chanting comes and goes and rises and ceases according to conditions. Even the most beautiful thoughts, you know, in poetry, you know, you sometimes you remember them, sometimes you don't. But to to be the awareness of thought is that's what that's what you really are, consciousness itself. This deathless reality, Dhamma, and it's not personal, it's not a personal self. So it's, you know, the word self is a created word, uh, which refers to usually a person, separate selves. But as I was saying before, when you let go of everything, there's still knowing, there's still a conscious awareness that doesn't say it belongs to anybody, but it's pure, it's here and now, it's knowing it's like this. So at this moment, when I say it's like this, you know, you're opening, you're kind of embracing the moment rather than trying to figure out what I'm talking about is what you're experiencing emotionally at this very moment is like this. And allow it to be that way. Don't try to change it. Don't try to figure out or judge it, whether you're right or wrong with what you're feeling. Whether your feeling is right or wrong at this moment is your personal conditioning, conditioned opinion. But to let go of everything and accept this moment as it is, is like this, is developing the path, perfect, enlightened understanding. So when we talk about the Eightfold Path, you know, it's enlightened understanding. Right understanding always has the, the probability of wrong understanding. So just contemplate, like enlightened understanding isn't about right and wrong anymore. It's knowing, it's like this. And resting, relaxing, abiding in the, in your, in a, in the natural state, the natural being of Dhamma. So I offer this as reflection. Thank you, Lampong.